Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Nations of Canada podcast, episode 45, The Bottom of the Bay. In the late summer of 1660, two French fur traders... Medard Chouard de Grosier and Pierre-Esprit Radisson arrived in Montreal after spending more than a year in the mysterious western Great Lakes. They were accompanied by a whole convoy of indigenous canoes, filled to the brim with beaver pelts. The two coureurs de bois, or runners of the woods, could be forgiven for thinking that this would be the first of many profitable expeditions. Over the past 15 months, they had encountered dozens of nations eager to trade, and forged personal relationships with many of them. The pair now knew more about indigenous trade networks than any Frenchman before them, even Champlain. And best of all, the long war with the Iroquois was winding down. Military defeats were bringing the five nations of the Confederacy to the negotiating table. The St. Lawrence fur trade seemed destined for a renaissance, and no one was in a better position to reap the benefits than Grossier and his brother-in-law, Radisson. But instead of being welcomed as the heroes of a revitalized fur trade, the two men were treated as criminals. Grosier was briefly imprisoned on the charge of illegal private trading in the interior, and any future voyages were aggressively discouraged by the colonial government. In fact, the elites of New France were broadly aligned against the two traders. The bosses of the fur trade didn't like the independence with which Grosier and Radisson operated. Ideally, trade was carried out on the St. Lawrence, under the watchful eye of company officials, not in the wilderness of the interior. The church frowned on the Coeur de Bois as well. Such independent traders tended to be men of loose morals, who provided a dangerously unchristian example to their indigenous customers. There was no greater threat to the Jesuit dream of crafting a Christian utopia in the forests of Canada. And finally, the colonial government was also uneasy about the freedom traders exercised in the vast interior. Strategists in both Paris and Quebec saw the indigenous nations to the west of New France as crucial military allies against the Iroquois, and later the English. Any expansion into their territory, therefore, had to be carefully managed. For men focused on the big picture, geopolitically speaking, independent traders were far too unpredictable and unreliable to represent France in this crucially important theater. In the post-war period, and for decades after, these commercial, religious, and strategic elites would wage a persistent battle against the young men drawn into the Canadian interior by dreams of freedom and profit. But our concern in this episode lies with the two original coureurs de bois, Grosier and Radisson. They decided that they had had enough of the short-sighted authorities in Quebec. If their brand of commercial genius wasn't wanted on the St. Lawrence, then so be it. There was more than one way to skin a beaver, so to speak. After the rude welcome they received in 1660, Grosier and Radisson turned their attention to a brand new commercial venture. In a sense, their project was pieced together from information that had been in the public domain for decades but their travels over the past 10 years gave them the unique tools necessary to put it all together. On the return leg of their last voyage, the pair had cut across the north shore of Lake Superior. There, they encountered several groups of Cree, whose seasonal migrations brought them far north to the shores of Hudson Bay. As ever, Grosier and Radisson were as interested in knowledge as furs, and Radisson in particular had made a quick study of the Cree languages. 
In doing so, he learned that the beaver stocks of the far north were in much better condition than the well-trapped territory around the Great Lakes. What's more, the two traders knew, from careful study of merchandise, that the further north you went, the higher the quality of the beaver pelts. The animals grew luxurious coats in response to the bitter winters. Of course, this wasn't exactly new information. Ever since the ill-fated Nicolas de Vignon 50 years earlier, the French had known that indigenous trade networks linked the St. Lawrence to Hudson Bay. What Grosset and Radisson had going for them was first-hand knowledge of a few Cree bands and how precisely they were connected with trading partners further south. In other words, more than anyone else in the world, Grosset and Radisson realized that the northern Cree were the key to the continental fur trade. The second piece of information floating around the ether that the two men seized on was that there was a more direct way to tap the Cree fur market than bringing them all the way down to the St. Lawrence. They decided to follow in the footsteps of another doomed character from the past, Henry Hudson. Hudson Bay has more or less slipped into the background of our story over the past 30 episodes or so. For most of the European world, the frozen sea of the north was synonymous with death and failure. The English commissioned several voyages in the 1610s, searching for a passage to the Pacific, and somewhat less enthusiastically, searching for Hudson and his son. But eventually, interest petered out, as it became apparent that there was no easy passage around the continent. This was confirmed in the early 1630s, when Thomas James thoroughly mapped the southern reaches of the bay, in particular the southern bay within the bay that bears his name. James published a report of his voyage, confirming that beyond all doubt, Hudson Bay didn't provide any passageway through the continent. He did predict that a profitable fur trade might be conducted on its shores, but there was little appetite in England for such pedestrian commerce. Grosset and Radisson, however, saw the potential for a fur network even more profitable than the one centered around the St. Lawrence. The Cree were used to passing off their pelts to indigenous middlemen at ridiculously low prices. It was only transporting the fur down various waterways that elevated the costs. Shipping them directly to Europe from the shore of Hudson Bay would be doubly profitable. Both prices and transportation costs would be much lower compared to the Ottawa-St. Lawrence network. Thoroughly disillusioned with the colonial authorities, Grosset and Radisson went over the heads of the men of Quebec and sailed to France to propose their idea in Paris. However, the backwoodsmen made little progress at court as they encountered all the same prejudices against their entrepreneurial genius that they had met in Quebec. Refusing to give up, the two men turned to the one place that seemed to prize commerce over class, religion, or imperial politics, America. By 1662, the pair were in Boston, promoting the idea of a Hudson Bay fur trading operation to anyone who would listen, ideally someone with access to a ship. Eventually, they found the perfect partners, the Gillum family. The Gillums were well-established shipwrights in New England, who operated several ships of their own. They were intrigued by the riches that these French adventurers claimed were just lying there in the north, waiting to be plucked. In the summer of 1663, Zachariah Gillum, the patriarch of the clan, joined with the Frenchmen on an experimental voyage. None of them had ever been to Hudson Bay, and as far as we know, none of them had even been north of Newfoundland. And aside from the unique challenge Arctic sailing posed, there was the small matter of the furious overfall the treacherous tidal rip that guarded the channel into the bay. It had been a generation since anyone had made a careful study of the channel, so they would be going in blind. As it happened, Gillam's ship never got that far. After encountering some dangerous ice flows along the Labrador coast, the group returned home to Boston. They acquired some fur during the trip, but not enough to offset the cost of the voyage. In other words, the experiment failed. But Grosset and Radisson were persistent, and they soon found that their bad luck had in fact been good luck. Had they spent the winter of 1663-1664 in Hudson Bay, they would have missed a chance encounter in Boston with the man who had helped them realize their dream, George Cartwright. 
Cartwright wasn't a native Bostonian, but an Englishman visiting the colonies on official government business. That business has actually been a running theme connecting the last few episodes, the English conquest of New Netherland, now New York. The Anglo-Dutch War was still ongoing, and it wasn't yet clear how permanent the colonial conquest would be. The English and Dutch states were more commercial rivals than sworn religious enemies, or nations who lusted after each other's territory, which meant that their war, and another one they had fought a decade earlier, weren't really life-or-death affairs. The fight was mostly about trade policy and global commercial influence. To be a bit glib about it, something like 21st century nations negotiating a trade deal, just a little more aggressively. Cartwright's job was to investigate the newly conquered Dutch colony and recommend what the English government should do with it. Use it as a trading chit to secure concessions elsewhere? Or was there commercial value on the Hudson River worth exploiting? Working out of Boston, Cartwright was conducting interviews with colonials well-versed in American commerce to help him arrive at a conclusion. But importantly for Grosset and Radisson, Cartwright had another unofficial mission in the colonies. His patron and mentor back in England, George Cartwright, was one of the wealthiest men in the kingdom and had his finger in many pies, some of which were in the American colonies. In his spare time, Cartwright was keeping an eye on his boss's investments to make sure they were running smoothly. More broadly, he was on the lookout for any new opportunities, and these backwoods French traders seemed to have a doozy on their hands. For their part, the Frenchmen, and the Gillums for that matter, jumped at the chance. Cartwright, the man Cartwright represented, had access to resources far beyond anything the Gillums could provide on their own. Not only was Cartwright one of the richest men in England, but he was also one of the best connected at the royal court. He had been born on the Channel Island of Jersey and was bilingual from childhood, making him an ideal patron for French fur traders. By a happy coincidence, King Charles II had spent some time in Jersey in the 1640s, when he was the Prince of Wales, fleeing from England in the wake of his father's defeat in the Civil War. Carteret and the future king became friends, a friendship Charles didn't forget when he took up his father's crown in 1660. By the time Grosier and Radisson were meeting with Cartwright in Boston in 1664, Cartwright had parlayed that friendship and his financial acumen into an influential position at court. He managed the treasury of the navy, and more importantly, the personal finances of the king himself. Cartwright was the genius who kept the convoluted royal household afloat. By the spring of 1665, Cartwright was convinced enough to provide letters of introduction to court for the two Frenchmen to present their idea to potential investors in England. Zachariah Gillam, who still believed in the project and welcomed fresh injections of capital, escorted the party across the Atlantic on his ship. Unfortunately, this voyage was an even bigger disaster than the failed attempt to reach Hudson Bay two years earlier. On the other side of the Atlantic, Dutch pirates seized their vessel and dumped Gillam, Grosé, and Radisson on the Spanish coast. There they were stranded for several months and only managed to find passage to London in December. However, once again, what looked like bad luck actually turned out to be good luck. Had their Atlantic crossing proceeded as planned, the group would have arrived in London at the height of the Great Plague that devastated the city in the summer and fall of 1665. While the Frenchmen languished in Spain, as many as 100,000 of London's 350,000 residents died. As it was, the London they encountered later that winter was a ghost town. Everyone who could afford to had scattered to the safety of the countryside. The visitors quickly learned that the royal court had temporarily relocated to Oxford, and so they made their way to the university town. There, they discovered both good and bad news. The bad news was that their would-be patron, George Carteret, the man for whom they had braved the Atlantic and the plague, was ruined. The capture of New York aside, the war wasn't going well for the English, and as the mastermind of the navy, Carteret was getting the blame. Parliament had opened impeachment proceedings against him. 
The king used his influence to protect his old friend as best he could, but politically speaking, Carteret's career was over. The good news, though, was that once Grosset and Radisson had their foot in the door, they no longer needed Carteret. Radisson, in particular, entertained the gentlemen of the court with tales of his adventures as an adopted Iroquois warrior, or the untamed wilderness of the North American interior. Really, the royal court was the ideal audience for the grand project. The hard-headed businessmen of London would have likely expected financial projections and detailed plans of what the Frenchmen intended to do in the Canadian Arctic. But as neither Grosset nor Radisson had ever been to Hudson Bay, and only knew the region through decades-old maps produced by other explorers, that was impossible. But Radisson's adventure stories were the perfect lure to attract bored, aristocratic investors, sitting out the plague at Oxford. The most attentive listeners were a mixture of romantic courtiers looking for glory and those with a scientific curiosity about the natural world. Upon his return to England, Charles II had founded the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge, or more informally, the Royal Society. The organization formalized a scientific movement that had been building throughout the past generation and brought together cutting-edge natural philosophers like Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke with influential amateur enthusiasts at court though in the 17th century the line between scientist and amateur enthusiast was so blurry that it may as well not have existed. But that's a discussion for an entirely different podcast. What's important for us is that the relatively new Royal Society was the perfect venue for the kind of project these French visitors were proposing. The Canadian Arctic might provide all sorts of totally new natural phenomena to study, from the region's unique botanical specimens to new vantage points from which to make astronomical observations. No one represented this mixture of romantic adventurism and curiosity better than the man who would take the lead in the Hudson Bay Project, Prince Rupert. As the name suggests, Rupert was a member of the extended royal family. He was Charles II's cousin, the son of the king's aunt, Elizabeth, and Frederick, the late prince-elector of the Palatine in Germany. Rupert was 47 years old in 1665, but had done enough in that time to fill several lifetimes. Before the age of 20, he had fought in several continental wars, and in a spare time, organized a colonial expedition to Madagascar, though that project fell through before it got off the ground. After a brief spell in an Austrian prison, Rupert arrived in England in 1642, just in time for the Civil War. Despite still just being in his early 20s, he immediately became the most trusted military advisor in the army of his uncle, King Charles I. The king's trust was well-placed, Rupert had spent his time in captivity studying military tactics and brought revolutionary new ideas about the use of cavalry into England. In the early part of the war, Rupert led the Royalists to several glorious victories, though eventually parliamentarian soldiers like Oliver Cromwell learned to mimic his tactics and ultimately emerged victorious. Rupert didn't let a little thing like losing the war stop him, though. In the aftermath of the conflict, a portion of Parliament's navy defected, and the prince reinvented himself as a naval commander. His rogue fleet terrorized parliamentarian shipping for several years before he was eventually forced to give up the fight. Rupert then spent the latter half of the 1650s back on the battlefield, fighting all across Europe, until his cousin Charles II finally returned to power in England in 1660. Now in his 40s, the prince turned to a more leisurely life at court, but Rupert didn't really do anything in a leisurely fashion. During this period, he worked tirelessly on various inventions and mechanical refinements, such as the revolver pistol, bulletproof glass, self-propelled torpedoes, landmines, and a method for mass-producing prints of engravings. As you might imagine, he was also deeply ensconced in the Royal Society set. Importantly for our story, Rupert was also interested in international commerce. When Grosset and Radisson arrived in England, the prince was managing the African Company, an investment group that focused on the West African slave trade. 
However, he was finding that the hostile Dutch, who were much better established in West Africa, were making the project a giant money pit. In yet another bit of perfect timing, Rupert was in the market for a new grand investment vehicle at the exact moment these French visitors arrived at court. By the summer of 1666, the plague was dying down sufficiently for real progress to be made. Rupert and a handful of other court notables put together the money for a ship and convinced the king to lease them a second one. But the war was still going poorly for the English, and it was deemed too risky to set out on any voyages just yet. An even greater obstacle was thrust in their way in September, when a great fire destroyed a huge swath of London. Once again, Grosier and Radisson got a front-row seat for one of the great disasters of English history. In fact, the Frenchmen got a bit too close to the fire. Not literally, their court patrons had put them up in Westminster, west of the city, which escaped the fire. But in the aftermath of the blaze, English society took a dim view of foreigners, especially Catholic foreigners. 17th century England was fertile ground for conspiracy theories, so whenever anything bad happened, a paranoid Protestant public usually turned on the nearest Catholic to hand. It didn't help that France had recently joined the Dutch side of the war. Any Frenchman in the London area lucky enough to have survived the fire now faced the danger of the mob. In an attempt to appease the crowd, the authorities arrested and executed Robert Hubert, a French watchmaker and London resident. Hubert confessed to starting the fire, but A, it's likely that he was intimidated, if not tortured into doing so, B, the part of the city he claimed to have set on fire didn't actually burn, and C, he hadn't been in the city on the night of the fire. But the people demanded French blood, and so Hubert was sent to the scaffold. Unsurprisingly, Grosier, and even the normally theatrical Radisson, decided to keep a low profile for the next few months. Their Hudson Bay project was put on the back burner. Plans to sail the following year, 1667, were dashed as well. In June, the Dutch executed a daring raid on the main English dockyards in Kent, destroying much of the Royal Navy. It was one of the worst disasters in English naval history, and Rupert and the others shelved any plans to outfit a voyage that summer. The one bright side was that the raid convinced Charles that he had to make peace with the Dutch. At the end of July, the two sides signed the Treaty of Breda, bringing an end to the conflict. Befitting their victories, the Dutch were able to secure several concessions. England conceded Dutch commercial supremacy in the ports of northern Germany and the lucrative spice islands of Indonesia. The English also formally recognized Dutch control over their Brazilian sugar plantations and the West African slave trade, the final nail in the coffin of Rupert's African company. Importantly for our story, however, the English negotiators held firm on New Netherland. Cartwright's report had highlighted the commercial value of the Hudson River. In exchange for numerous diplomatic wins elsewhere around the globe, the Dutch recognized the new English colony of New York. I say that's important for our story, but that's more in the grand narrative of the podcast. What's important for our story in this particular episode is that the Treaty of Breda made the seas around England safe for voyages of commerce and exploration. After more than two years of waiting, the Hudson Bay Project was finally on. In the summer of 1668, two ships prepared to sail from England into the Canadian Arctic. It had been nearly 60 years since Hudson's initial voyage, and more than 30 since any dedicated English expedition into the bay. Recognizing the uncertainties of Arctic travel, Grosier and Radisson split up. Grosier boarded the Nonsuch, captained by their old partner, Zachariah Gillam, and Radisson traveled on the Eaglet. Almost immediately, the decision to not put all their eggs in one basket paid off. A storm battered the Eaglet off the coast of Ireland, and the crew had to hack the ship's mast off to save them. The ship limped back to Plymouth, and by the time repairs were completed, the summer window was gone. Grosier and Gillam had better luck. They managed to push through the channel in late July and early August. 
They wintered in James Bay, at the southern extremity of the larger Hudson Bay, and established a camp on a river they named the Rupert, after their patron. The winter was a successful one. Gillam had packed enough dried fruit to prevent the appearance of scurvy among the crew. Meanwhile, Grosier's knowledge of the Cree language, and indigenous trade practices more generally, produced a profitable trading season. There was the usual exchange of furs and European goods, but Grosier had also brought a large supply of wampum, and focused on establishing long-term relationships with the locals. When the non-such arrived back in England in August 1669, it set off a sensation at court. The voyage itself proved to be a financial success, but everyone was thinking about the future. And it didn't take long for those dreams to be translated into legal reality. Now that there was proof of the project's viability, the king drew up a charter for Prince Rupert and his buddies. The Hudson's Bay Company, as the group is named, was formally founded in May 1670. 350 years later, it still exists, the world's oldest company. In fact, I bought a scarf from them for my girlfriend last Christmas. But while today the Hudson's Bay Company is a fairly conventional department store, in 1670 it was a geopolitical organization as much as a commercial one. In drawing up the charter, King Charles had one eye on how his cousin Louis XIV would react. As we've seen in the last few episodes, the diplomatic situation in Europe was quite fluid in this period. In particular, the relationships between the Dutch, English, and French. In the 1660s, each of these nations were feeling their way through the new geopolitical environment in Europe. The old Franco-Spanish rivalry that had defined European diplomacy for more than a century was fading away. Spain was now a second-rate power, leaving France as Europe's lone superpower. In the old Europe, France and the Netherlands had been longtime allies, united by their animosity towards the Spanish. We've seen in this episode how those old ties still lingered. I mentioned in passing that France had joined the Dutch in their war against England. But Louis XIV had only joined the Anglo-Dutch war reluctantly. Increasingly, he now saw the Dutch as his greatest rival, as the two nations both eyed the Spanish Netherlands greedily. Where England fit into this shifting landscape was still uncertain. In the past 15 years, the English had fought two wars with their commercial rivals in the Netherlands. But the English and Dutch were united in their Protestant faith, and if an all-powerful France swallowed up the Netherlands, thus dominating the continental side of the English Channel, England might be next. On the other hand, Charles II had close personal ties with Louis XIV. In addition to being related, Charles's mother, Queen Henrietta Maria, was Louis's aunt, the English king received regular financial support from the French crown. In a sense, this was a diplomatic investment on Louis's part. So long as Charles could count on French subsidies, he wouldn't be reliant on England's parliament for tax revenue. If history was any judge, parliaments tended to be overly patriotic and aggressively anti-Catholic, neither trait conducive to French interests. So, to return to the Hudson's Bay Company charter, Charles was in a tight spot. He wanted to further the global interests of his kingdom, but ideally he wanted to do so without alienating the French crown that provided him with his financial independence. The new colony at New York presented the exact same problem. To an impartial observer, it might well look like England was deliberately encroaching on France's Canadian fur trade, both from the north and the south. Rupert appears to have been instrumental in convincing Charles that a trading operation in Hudson Bay wouldn't directly threaten the French colony on the St. Lawrence. Or at the very least, the Canadian theatre was far enough removed from Louis' European ambitions that it wouldn't really affect their relationship. In part, the Hudson's Bay Companymen benefited from the king's ignorance of Canadian geography, though to be fair, they were all pretty ignorant about what they were getting themselves into. This lack of knowledge was evident in the charter. 
The king granted the company jurisdiction over all territory drained by the rivers that fed into Hudson Bay. In recognition of his cousin's role in the operation, Charles named this continental expanse Rupert's Land. No one knew it at the time, but Rupert's Land, as defined in the charter, covered 40% of modern-day Canada and a large swath of the American states of Minnesota and North Dakota. In fact, it would be more than a century before anyone had an inkling of the true size of the company's territory. And it was the company's territory. The company, rather than the crown, was responsible for administering justice in Rupert's Land and providing for the military defense of the king's subjects there. Company officials were also tasked with conducting diplomacy with the indigenous peoples of the region, a crucial part of their commercial activities. The English state would play virtually no role in the company's affairs and contribute nothing towards its expenses. In this, the Hudson's Bay Charter was in line with other European colonial projects of the era. As we saw, the French crown refrained from any direct role in New France for more than 50 years. Colonies were expensive, and European states generally left the work of paying for them to private companies until they became profitable or strategically important enough to finance directly. What set the Hudson's Bay Company charter apart from the other overseas ventures was the absence of any reference to colonial settlement or missionary work. From the outset, the company was imagined as a narrowly commercial enterprise. The charter did lay out an obligation to explore the Canadian Arctic in the hopes that a passage to the Pacific might yet be found, but there was no expectation of planting settlers or converting the locals. In terms of its internal structure, the company was strictly segregated between the aristocratic directors who managed things from England and the employees who oversaw the trading posts in the bay. Prince Rupert and his colleagues made decisions in London coffee houses, sometimes based on information that was months or often years out of date. More than any other colonial operation, the Hudson's Bay Company struggled with transatlantic communication. Access to the bay was restricted to a brief window every summer, which meant the ships that headed out in the spring weren't able to report any news until late the following summer. In theory, the men in London called the shots, but throughout the history of the company, the officials on the ground in Hudson Bay often had to make snap decisions on their own. On a similar note, the charter was only half the story of the company's founding. It remained to be seen how the ill-informed assumptions of the document's draftees would be implemented in reality. In May 1670, as the charter was being finalized, Grosé and Radisson once again sailed out of England on two separate vessels. This time, they both made it into the bay. Taking command of this first official voyage of the Hudson's Bay Company was Charles Bailey. Now, you could probably do a whole podcast on Bailey's life, but I'll try to keep this focused on the relevant bits to our story here. Bailey was born around 1630 in London to a Frenchman within Queen Henrietta Maria's Catholic household, and possibly an English mother. This royal connection, not to mention his Catholic upbringing, left Bailey on the wrong side of the Civil War in the 1640s, and he spent his teenage years in France. That is, until an ill-advised attempt to return to Republican England in the 1650s. Almost as soon as he got off the boat, Bailey was identified as a royalist, a foreigner, and a Catholic. He wasn't arrested exactly, but was forced into colonial servitude and shipped to America. The tobacco plantations of Virginia and Maryland depended on cheap labor, and since the English had yet to fully break into the West African slave market, that meant a steady supply of indentured servants from England, Scotland, and Ireland. Oliver Cromwell had found enforced colonial servitude as a useful instrument to rid England of the many prisoners of war produced by the conflicts of the 1640s and 1650s. Anyway, Bailey found himself working on the tobacco plantations of Maryland for several years. As you know from our episodes on Newfoundland, Maryland was founded by the Calvert family as a refuge for their fellow English Catholics. 
By the time Bailey got there in the 1650s, the principle of religious toleration in Maryland was widely applied to almost everyone, not just Catholics. In fact, Bailey was drawn into the most radical religious group of the era, the Quakers. He returned to England around the same time as Charles II came to the throne. As unlikely as it sounds, the two men knew each other. They had both been born around the same time and grew up within the same royal household. Although they hadn't seen each other in years, it seems that some kind of relationship still existed between them. That relationship was sorely tested, though, in the first years of the king's reign. Bailey spent most of the 1660s behind bars, as preaching the Quaker gospel was a serious crime against the established Church of England. Quaker theology denied the authority of any established church, and Quakers staunchly refused to swear loyalty or any other grandiose displays of honor to temporal authorities like kings. As a result, they were strictly persecuted by state officials everywhere. However, despite spending a decade in and out of prison, Bailey was plucked out of the Tower of London to serve as the Hudson's Bay Company's governor in the Bay in 1670. Why he was chosen remains a bit of a mystery. It's possible that the king saw Bailey as a useful link to the Quakers and other religious radicals within his kingdom. Charles was an astute politician and saw the advantages of accommodation with his more troublesome subjects over brutal repression. Why Bailey should be chosen to lead a trading company in the Canadian Arctic is less clear. But considering Bailey proved to be a successful company official, it perhaps speaks to the judgment of character of those who selected him, maybe even the king himself. So, now that we have that lengthy aside behind us, what did Bailey and our French woodrunners get up to in Hudson Bay? The first thing to note is that everyone remained fantastically ignorant about the geography of the bay. Radisson suggested that they established their main base of operations at the bottom of James Bay, from which, he claimed, canoes could get to the western Great Lakes in a week. On top of that, from the southern shore of Lake Michigan, it was less than 200 kilometers to Mexico. The projections of the always exuberant Radisson may have been particularly ridiculous in hindsight, but he was representative of the group. None of them really understood the territory their company ruled over. Running along the entire rim of the bay, from James Bay to the south, up past the Nelson River in the west, was a stretch of flat, swampy coastal plain. The winters were predictably harsh, but the summers brought their own challenges. Due to the permafrost, the spring thaw never fully drained away, creating a wet, mucky landscape, the perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes and other blood-sucking insects. The coastal plain didn't provide much in the way of sustenance either. The Cree bands who visited the area tended to spend most of their time further inland, where forests provided game and other sources of food. In other words, it was no coincidence that Henry Hudson's expedition had only encountered a single Cree visitor during its stay on the coast. The land really only had any value for specific periods during the spring and fall, when large flocks of geese passed through on their migrations. Hopefully, the existence of trading posts would change all that. The company's business plan was, in effect, if you build it, they will come. Cree traders would make the trip from the interior, allowing the company men to remain on the coast. There were two options for where to build their initial post. First, there was what became known as the bottom of the bay, the southern tip of the bay that reached deep inland, James Bay. James Bay had the advantage of being further south than any other part of the bay, promising a milder climate. It was also much closer to the existing trade network north of the St. Lawrence. In fact, the French knew, as far back as 1613, that James Bay was accessible via the Ottawa River route. The Nipissing often traded with the Cree in the area. But there were some drawbacks to the bottom of the bay. Or, more accurately, the proximity to the pre-existing network was both a blessing and a curse. Conflict with French traders would be virtually inevitable, 
and much of the territory that drained into James Bay had been exploited for decades, diminishing the beaver population. The second option was the West. The commercial potential there was less certain, but there was reason to believe there was great untapped potential. Gillam and Grosier had traded in the western part of the bay on the initial voyage, and things had gone well. The Nelson River, the main access point in the west, flowed from territory no European had ever traveled to before. In fact, unbeknownst to the company men, the Nelson led directly to Lake Winnipeg, a massive body of water in the middle of the continent, which itself provided riverways that led to the Rocky Mountains, far in the west. Bailey decided to split the two ships and try their luck at both locations. Bailey and Radisson on the Wiveneau sailed for the Nelson River in the west, while Grosier on the Gillam-captained Prince Rupert went south to revisit the previous post on the Rupert River. The Grosier-Gillam partnership quickly built a post on the Rupert, which became known as Rupert House. Bailey and Radisson, however, had a tougher time getting to the Nelson. Their ship was battered by storms, and they arrived in the area too late in the season. There were no Cree to be found. Eventually, Bailey decided to give up and join the other ship, which had hopefully enjoyed better luck. The exploitation of the West would have to wait. This trip was even rougher than the last, and by the time Bailey and Radisson arrived at Rupert House, several crew members had succumbed to scurvy. The irrepressible Radisson, however, was determined to turn hardship into triumph. Over the winter, he trudged around 200 kilometers over land to Moose River, to the West. There, he met with multiple Cree bands and urged them to come to Rupert House in the spring to trade. In this, he demonstrated the value he and Grosier provided. If the Hudson's Bay Company was going to rely on Cree traders coming to them, promotion and marketing would have to be a key part of their program. And the two Frenchmen were the only ones with the language skills and cultural knowledge to do the job. In the end, the spring trading was a smashing success. Radisson's promotion campaign drew a slew of customers, and the local relationships Grosier had developed on the previous voyage paid off handsomely. Bailey sailed back to England in June 1671, with a ship full to bursting with fur, leaving Grosier and Radisson in the bay to continue trading. But despite the company's resounding success, our two heroes, Grosier and Radisson, were in for personal and professional disappointment. In a sense, they were caught between two worlds. The French saw them as traitors, and the English saw them as outsiders. The first blow against them came when Bailey arrived back in England in the summer. The wily old Quaker took full credit for the success of the voyage, and downplayed the role of the Frenchman. As they were busy conducting trade in the Arctic, neither was able to contradict Bailey's narrative. The company officials in London were all too happy to ignore the contributions of the foreigners. I mean, sure, they had come up with a good idea, but now that the operation was up and running, did we really need them anymore? The new company policies for the next voyage reflected the marginalization of the Frenchman. The company banned any employee from conducting private trade on the side. This was a serious blow to both Grosier and Radisson. So far, their income from private trading mounted to triple their company salaries. It was the same old story they had tried to escape from in New France. They did all the work, and the company bosses kept all the profits, and called them thieves if they dared to keep any of the money they had earned. When news of what had happened reached Rupert House, the Frenchmen were incensed. The second problem facing our heroes was that word of their activity had reached their countrymen in Quebec. By 1671, rumors of European traders in the north had filtered through the trade network down to the St. Lawrence. The intendant of New France, Jean Talon, commissioned a Jesuit priest, Charles Albanel, to investigate. In the autumn of 1671, Albanel left Tadoussac with a collection of Innu guides. The party paddled up the Saguenay and wintered at the river's source, Lac Saint-Jean. 
From there, Albanel and his guides had to make over 200 portages as they snaked their way west and north across the Canadian Shield. The journey was arduous, but even more dispiriting for Albanel, it was obvious that moving goods along this route would be ruinously labor-intensive. If the English had set up a trading post on Hudson Bay, it wasn't clear how the French could compete. It wasn't until June of 1672 that the Jesuit scout arrived at the bay. He quickly found the company trading post on the Rupert River, but no one was there. Rather than staying for another winter, Grosset, Radisson, and the other company men had sailed home with their goods the previous summer. Nevertheless, the evidence was undeniable. The English had constructed a permanent trading post. They intended to return. The following summer, 1673, the competition on the bay heated up. Once again, Grosier, Radisson, and Bailey returned to Rupert House, and so did Father Albanel. This time, the Jesuit was under orders from the new governor of New France, the Comte de Frontenac, to sabotage the English company. He carried with him a letter from the governor, offering the French defectors generous terms to redefect back to New France. Unbeknownst to the French, this was an offer that the two fur trade veterans were more than willing to entertain. They had grown disillusioned with their English bosses. Meanwhile, the trading at Rupert House was much diminished in comparison to the earlier visits. In part, this was due to French traders moving into the region. The colonial authorities were willing to subsidize trade at a loss in order to squeeze the English interlopers out of business. It was a bitter, frustrating winter, followed by a bitter, frustrating spring. Relations between Bailey and the Frenchmen were decidedly sour, and the lucrative trade they'd come to count on seemed to be drying up. Tensions boiled over in the first months of the year when company men discovered a beaten and bloody Father Albanel just outside Rupert House. Apparently, he had been assaulted by a local Cree band. The Englishman took the Jesuit in and tended to his wounds, but the atmosphere immediately darkened when Bailey found Frontenac's letter to Grosier among Albanel's possessions. The loyalties of the Frenchman were suspect. As soon as the ice broke up in the summer, Bailey and Radisson both made for England. Bailey to denounce the two French partners, and Radisson to report Bailey's domineering and tyrannical behavior. The partnership on which the Hudson's Bay Company had been founded, French-Canadian ingenuity and English capital, was breaking apart. Back in England, Radisson did little to help his cause, or that of his brother-in-law, Grosier. The Frenchman eloped with Mary Kirk, the daughter of John Kirk, a company shareholder, and niece of David Kirk, the one-time conqueror of Quebec. Radisson's new father-in-law was outraged that his daughter would marry so far below her station, a mere employee, and a Catholic to boot. The resulting scandal, combined with the uncertainty surrounding the loyalty of Grosier, ended the relationship between the Hudson's Bay Company and the two fur traders. To add insult to injury, it turned out that the French had no interest in welcoming the defectors back. Frontenac's offer had merely been a ploy to deprive the English of their services. The French crown paid a small gratuity to the two men and cancelled their debts, but once they arrived in France, they were on their own. Grosier, now 57 years old, returned to Trois-Rivières to take up farming with his family, while the younger Radisson left his wife behind in England and sought out new adventures as a privateer in the Caribbean. The pair could take some small consolation in the fact that the English came to regret the loss of their expertise. Bailey and the other company men had made a mistake. Without Radisson's linguistic skills and Grosier's lifetime of indigenous trading experience, the company struggled to attract Cree traders in the kinds of numbers they had initially. As it turned out, simply building coastal trading posts wasn't enough. It would take several years for English traders to develop the knowledge and skills that their French counterparts had been honing in Canada for two generations. But despite these setbacks, the Hudson's Bay Company wouldn't be going away anytime soon. 
Coupled with the new English presence on the Hudson River, New France faced commercial challenges in both the North and the South. Next time, we'll see French traders, missionaries, and colonial officials respond by striking out in the one direction left open to them, the West. Music by Jason Shaw, audionautics.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.